Well, hello everyone. This is Chris Martin with Heterodox Academy. I'm here with Dr. John Zimmerman. He's one of the founding members of Heterodox Academy, and we're here for our first video interview for Heterodox. Um, John is the author of five or possibly six books. Is it five? Seven. Seven, sorry. Um, on education, primarily on the history of education, controversies in education, teaching controversial subjects in education. His latest book, which he's co-authored with Emily Robertson, is The Case for Contention. Um, he goes by John, but his full name is Jonathan Zimmerman, so if you want to look him up on Amazon, Jonathan is what you need. So can you tell us a bit about The Case for Contention? I noticed it was in the History and Philosophy of Education series. So could you talk a bit about what the editor invited you to do there? <laughs> well, the reason I'm laughing is that yeah. one of the editors is me. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm the co I'm the co-editor of the series with uh, with Randy Curran, who teaches at uh, Rochester. And okay. the concept of the series is to pair historian and philosopher authors on hot button political questions in education. So we have one about homeschooling and one about school choice, one about evolution creation, uh, one about religion in schools and so on. And the concept okay. is the historian examines the development of the issue over time and the philosopher reflects on its present day implications. Okay. And so I noticed the book had an intro, a history chapter, a philosophy chapter and conclusion. So I'm guessing yeah. you did most of the history chapter and Emily did most of the philosophy chapter. Correct. And okay. and there, there there are different models for doing this. I'm not persuaded ours was the best one, but that's the one we chose. What are the other models out there? Well, the other models are the historian, the philosopher actually collaborate on each chapter. Okay. Um, uh, and for a variety of reasons, we proved unable to do that. Some of our authors have managed to do so. It turns okay. out that collaborating is quite a difficult thing for people in the humanities because we don't usually do it. My, my wife is a medical scientist, and every article she publishes has a zillion authors. Mm -hmm. uh, but I will admit that until I started editing this series and working on this book, I never collaborated with anyone on anything. Mm -hmm. uh, historians typically don't. We're, we're independent operators. Mm. Well, that makes sense. So just briefly, can you tell us a bit about Emily and how you decided to collaborate with her? Well, well, she she had written about the teaching of controversial, uh, controversial issues in schools with a particular eye to the sort of question that philosophers love and historians tend to evade. What yeah. is a controversy? Okay. You know, I'm a historian, and if you say the word controversy, I, I, I think I kind of know what it is. You know, people are arguing, and they disagree with each other, and, you know, sometimes tempers flare. It's controversial. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, the, the value added of philosophers is they don't let you get away with that. I, I think really their stock and trade is precision in language and in definition. So mm -hmm. really what, what Emily had done in several other articles and what she does in our book is she reflects on what we should call a controversy. And it turns right. out to be much more complicated than historians or anybody else I think realized. Okay. So on the topic of contention, um, not the philosophical side but the education side, um, you go into quite a lot of detail in the book on why it's really important to teach these subjects, um, but you talk about a cultural shift where somewhat younger teachers are sometimes shocked about what's, what's taught in classrooms with an expectation that controversial subjects should be ignored, which suggests that maybe within education schools, they're just not really 
taught in any way, one way or the other, about what you do with controversial subjects, and they just try to play it safe? Is that my... Well, one of the most depressing things I discovered in researching this book is that when you interview present-day teachers about their pre-service training, about their preparation to become teachers, and you ask Uh them, did this preparation include an examination of controversial issues and how to instruct them, the majority Uh say no. Um, Mm -hmm. So, in a way, we shouldn't be surprised that these issues are so rarely addressed in a substantive way in the classroom. Mm -hmm. We're not actually giving people the preparation to do it. It turns out to be an extraordinarily complex and difficult thing to do well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I want to be... to be clear, it does happen, and the surprise you referenced is depressing in, the, in and of itself, right? It's a surprise expressed by people who don't really think they can or should teach controversial issues in the classroom, discovering that, in fact, some people do. And mm-hmm. of course they do. I mean, you were taught by such teachers, and I was mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I want to be really clear about this. We're not saying that it doesn't occur. Of course it does. But we do think that it doesn't occur nearly enough. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is that we don't really have a discussion about it uh, mm-hmm. in our ed schools or in other places about, okay, what is a controversy mm-hmm. and how should we go about addressing it? So the first time you taught a controversial subject, I don't know if you can recall this, but if you can, how did it go? What, what was the subject and how did you decide to do oh. it? Did you just charge ahead? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, um, uh, I'll, I'll, tell you, uh, I'll tell you two stories, one which I regard as a rather nice story and one which is a rather depressing story that I, mm-hmm. I, I hope answered the question. Um, uh, I don't know if this was the first time I taught a controversial issue, but thanks to the wonders of the internet, mm-hmm. I now occasionally encounter people I taught in high school and middle school 30 years ago. Wow. And, okay. and um, I had lunch with one of them recently in the Twin Cities where she lived. She had gotten in touch with me, uh-huh. and she's an academic herself. And she described an exercise that I did in a 10th grade history class, which she, she said began her intellectual life. Uh-huh. Let me emphasize, Chris, I had no memory of this exercise at all. So okay. I'm relying entirely on her description. Um, I, we had reached the point in the U.S. history textbook where we were talking about the Second World War and its conclusion, and particularly the, the atomic bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh-huh. And according to my former student, who is you know, now uh, you know, a, a fully grown adult in a house and a kid and all this, she, uh-huh. she says, um, I come in and I, I had mimeographed, this is before the widespread availability of Xerox machines, uh-huh. relevant passage in a Soviet history textbook describing these events. Uh-huh. And what I did was I gave that to them and I asked them to read the passage in our textbook about these events, Hiroshima uh-huh. and Nagasaki, right. and tell me what they thought the differences were and, and which, which account they thought was stronger. Huh. And, and she said that this, this was a signal event in her life, again, one of which I had no memory at all, uh-huh. because it's the first time that she recognized that, um, well, history was a set of stories told from different perspectives and that where one stands might strongly affect the perspective that you bring to the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the nice story. Here's the not so nice one. Um, uh, after, after that event, which happened in Vermont, where I had followed mm-hmm. my girlfriend, now wife, to medical school, then I followed mm-hmm. her to Baltimore for her residency, and I started teaching in, in what today we would call inner city Baltimore in East Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was doing a unit on the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and kid in the class said, um, uh, "Is it true that Martin Luther King Jr. had affairs with women that were not Coretta Scott King?" Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, since 1987, this was right around when the Taylor Branch biographies were coming out. I think that the subject I'm referring to is much better known now than it mm-hmm. was in 1987, but it was known. Yeah. And I did what I thought was kind of the progressive educator thing to do. Mm-hmm. I planned a lesson around the question. Oh, okay. So I came in the next day and I said, okay, yesterday, little so-and-so asked the following question. Mm-hmm. I said, the answer is yes, but that's not what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about how we know the answer is yes. We're learning okay. to be historians. Historians mm-hmm. don't just make things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we know the answer to that question is yes. And now I hope most people know the answer. Back then they didn't. The answer mm-hmm. is that uh, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, with the approval mm-hmm. of the Attorney General of the United States, Robert F. Kennedy, who was the brother of the President of the United States, mm-hmm. wired at Martin Luther King and many other leaders in the civil rights movement, including people like Roy Wilkins. Mm-hmm. And it gets even worse. I mean, they blackmailed him as well, you mm-hmm. know, with the information or attempted to blackmail him mm-hmm. um, uh, by at one point even sending him a cassette tape of recordings they had made of him making love with one of his mistresses. I mean, just awful, mm-hmm. terrible stuff. Um, and uh, I regarded the lesson as, as a success when a kid in the class, and let me emphasize, almost everyone in the class was a different uh, racial ethnic background than myself. Mm-hmm. Kid in the class says, so you're telling me he was an enemy of the state? Yeah. And I said, yes, that's precisely <laughs> what I'm telling you. If mm-hmm. the state goes through all this sound and fury, mm-hmm. incredibly granular, intricate, evil activity to discredit you, Mm-hmm. I think it's a fair statement, right? Now, mm-hmm. of course, it's all it's all so hygienic and clean, right? Mm-hmm. Happy birthday, Martin, you know, day of service, mm-hmm. yada, yada. It is easy to forget that he was absolutely the most dangerous man in America and mm-hmm. an enemy of the state. Um, mm-hmm. So I walk away thinking, and this I do remember, you know, mm-hmm. I did okay today. You know, mm-hmm. they got the point, that's mm-hmm. for sure. But then the calls started to come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, from several parents um, uh, with whom I, I met. Mm-hmm. And, and um, again, this was more than half a lifetime ago, and I'm not sure how, how I would have handled this now. Mm-hmm. What I did then was, again, drawing on some of the reading I had done, I said that I've read that uh, Martin Luther King's favorite passage in Scripture was the one about the sellers in the temple. Mm-hmm. And that's the one where... Uh, you know, Jesus discovers people buying and selling things in the temple, and he doesn't have mm-hmm. like a nice little progressive education discussion about mm-hmm. whether this is, you know, right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't have a focus group. Mm-hmm. Um, to be a, as as brunt a, a, as as brutal as possible, he he loses his shit, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, he he overturns tables and livestock go running around. And he says, you know, my temple should be a house of the Lord, and you you've made it a den of thieves. And I said to this group of parents, I said, well. I think that the reason this is one of his favorite passages is it reminds us that Christ, although divine, is also human, uh-huh. right? If he's just divine, you're not enjoined to follow him. You can't because uh-huh. you're not divine, uh-huh. right? But if he's also human with the same uh, uh, imperfections, uh, uh-huh. infidelities as you and me, uh-huh. then there's a chance. Uh-huh. And this was not a winning argument. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, their view was that uh, people like me, i.e. white people, we already have heroes. They're on money, right? They're on money. Washington, Lincoln, Hamilton, Jackson, Grant, Franklin, right? 
Right. And we have this one guy who had recently had a federal holiday named after him, or it was in the course of happening. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't comfortable with that. I wanted to take him down. Mm. Of course, that's not my objective, but that was the way they viewed it. So mm-hmm. in this story, I think what you see is another really important check on the teaching of controversial issues, which is that lots of citizens don't want it. Uh-huh. On every side, on every side of the political spectrum, you know, uh-huh. people like me have a habit of calling pedagogy that we're discussing democratic education because uh-huh. it, in our view, prepares people for democratic citizenship, how uh-huh. to deal with the contrasting issues, how to listen, how to reason, how to deliberate. And I do uh-huh. believe that. And yet there is a contradiction or at least a tension. One of the demos, i.e. the people, don't mm-hmm. want it. Mm-hmm. How then is it democratic? And, and I'm not saying all the people don't want it, right? But I'm mm-hmm. saying in circumstances, people don't. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the issues we don't grapple with adequately in the book that almost none of us have grappled with is what to do about that. Mm-hmm. Well, you raise an interesting point, which I, as a sociologist, don't talk so much about individuals. Um, but there are certain people in the past who were now saints. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., Lincoln, George Washington, possibly others that I can't recall at the moment. And how do you, how do you confront the fact that those people were just actually human beings? And right. the fact that right. they're not saints doesn't mean they're demons either. It's just, it's a very complicated thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, I think the heroic narrative serves a certain kind of pluralistic function in American history Mm -hmm. and historical instruction, which is to read all of us into the story. One of Mm -hmm. my earlier books was called Who's America? And one of the stories I tell in that book Mm -hmm. is the way that Americans of every racial and ethnic background, in especially in the 20s and 30s, join hands to block a kind of progressive reading of the American Revolution and Constitution. When I say progressive, I'm talking about figures like Charles Beard, who looked at, say, the framers of the Constitution and discovered that, lo and behold, many of them held securities and failed governments under the Articles of Confederation, and therefore it was in their economic interest to have a more perfect union. Obviously, other people have taken issue with that theory. That's just an example of kind of what the the progressive, the modern challenge to these historic narratives was. Well, the story I tell in Who's America was that the people that, that, that challenged this and really prevented it from getting into our textbooks included Irish Americans, German Americans, African Americans, Jewish Americans. Yeah. Um, why? Because all of them have heroes in the American Revolution, right? Mm-hmm. The Germans have DeKalb, the Poles have Kosciuszko. Mm-hmm. African Americans, of course, have Crispus Attucks, who we think was the first person to lose his life in the American Revolution, the Boston mm-hmm. Massacre, right? Mm-hmm. And the way these people see it, if you start to mess with the heroic narrative, you mm-hmm. diminish each group's heroic contribution to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that so, yeah. to, right. So to use a very loaded, a very very loaded metaphor, everyone has skin in this game. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's really easy to pretend that it's only quote conservatives that mm-hmm. are looking to whitewash the past or distort it. Mm-hmm. I think everyone has done that, everyone from across the political spectrum and across the racial and ethnic one, mm-hmm. when it serves their own purposes. Right, and what you're saying reminds me of a book I read. So most of my um, education was in India. I lived in Saudi Arabia until I was 10 years old, and I went to an American school there. So I learned 
American history, if you can call it that, up to the third grade. But then I didn't learn so much American history except for a brief chapter on the revolution um, when I was in India. So I came to the U.S. and um, I didn't take any history classes in college, but I was curious about it. So I think shortly after college, I read um, Lies My Teacher Told Me, which yes. is a long book about how history is taught Jim to Lowen, American yeah. high schools high schoolers, which was interesting to me because I hadn't even done high school here, but it was interesting to read about the misunderstandings that Americans have about their own history as a result of the market for textbooks being skewed towards certain states that have a lot of influence on the market. Absolutely. And, and that book, by the way, I mean, I'm sure you know this, James Lowen, like yourself, he's a sociologist, uh -huh. you know, yeah. and, and he was interested in the kind of social forces that extend and protect this kind of distortion. And, mm -hmm. and at the time, the textbook publishing market was part of it. I think that's still the case, but possibly less so because of online alternatives that didn't okay. really exist when, when Lowen was working on those books, but it's still an issue. Okay. I mean, maybe in a small way, what we're trying to do at Heterodox Academy is a bit like what he's trying to do. And I know Lies My Teacher Told Me came out maybe 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah, I want to say early 90s, maybe. Okay. Sometime around then, or yeah. even late 80s, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he so did he did a subsequent edition too, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that eventually did change the history textbook market a little bit? It's hard to tell. You know, one of the things, as you know, that's so frustrating and fascinating about studying American mm -hmm. education is that there are 14,000 school districts almost, mm -hmm. right? So it's quite difficult to generalize about anything. Uh, which is why you should always be suspicious when you hear generalizations mm -hmm. about K-12 education. Right. You know? yeah. um, I, um, I do think that in some places there's been actually a quite revolutionary change in the way that history is presented. Mm -hmm. You know, think of think of all the debates uh, and discussions that are held around Columbus Day, for example, mm -hmm. in some American schools. Right. Um, right. Columbus Day, which for most of our history was just presented as an unadulterated a uh, piece of progress, right? Mm -hmm. right? And obviously that too, like like my student learned uh, in, in Vermont all those years ago, that depends on where you stand, right? Yeah. It depends on who you are, where you come from, what your politics and your background and your history are. Mm -hmm. It's gonna alter the way that you think about that day. So that's just an example, I think, of the kind of thing you see in some schools, but I wanna emphasize some schools because um, you know, I think there's still vast swaths of the United States where very little change has happened. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at ongoing debates in places like Texas, right, mm -hmm. which still has a relatively centralized uh, school system, what you see is enormous, enormous resistance mm -hmm. to um, uh, presenting anything like a, a multiple perspectives perspective on mm -hmm. history, right? Okay. I mean, yeah. if you. You know, uh, so so there's enormous variation. It's the short story. Mm -hmm. Well, and if I recall, one of the theses in his book was that when you actually teach the controversies, it makes history much more interesting. Otherwise, it's a somewhat dull subject. Chris, here not somewhat too. dull. It's deadly. I mean, <laughs> here's the most depressing statistic of all: when you mm -hmm. survey American high school kids about their major subjects in order of interest, mm -hmm. history is generally last. Um, and incidentally, math is usually near the top, uh, more yeah. so for boys, but also for girls, I've read. Really? Um, okay. And yeah. everyone has their own theory about this, but mine, mm -hmm. just using the Occam's razor simplest explanation, mm -hmm. is that even the worst math teacher has mm -hmm. to present a puzzle of some kind. Mm -hmm. Even if we're yeah. trying not to, 
you want to be able to, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to, that's what an, solving an equation is, right? Yeah. I mean, um, math is a series of puzzles. Now, of course, history is a series of puzzles too. Uh, that's mm-hmm. where this multiple perspectives things come in. The tragedy mm-hmm. is we don't present it as such, right? Mm-hmm. The textbook, like one of my mentors, David Tayak, uh, said, the textbook is presented as a monument between covers, yeah. right? right? It's a great term. And that's really what I think a lot of the kids are led to think it is. Mm-hmm. And then who cares about the monument, right? Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's everything that happened, mm-hmm. okay, in one dense, poorly written, and boring tone. Who wouldn't be bored by that? I would be. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, you know, when I was growing up, history was the same way. And it took me, uh, in India, and it took me a while to figure out why history was told that way. There was political reasons behind it and so forth. Absolutely. Where in yeah. India did you grow up? I grew up in Pune near Bombay. Yeah. So it's in the state of Maharashtra. I'm not sure if you're yes. familiar with Shivaji, but he's a big figure there. Yes, so, absolutely. Shivaji and the Shiv Sena, the right-wing party, so right. they definitely and, have and, an influence and, on it. And interestingly, some of those questions are playing out in the United States in places like California. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been really interesting. I mean, there have been Indian-American groups who have complained about the world history textbooks mm-hmm. because it doesn't prevent what they see as sort of the Brahmin view of India. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there's that change that's happening now. I mean, there are Chinese-American students who don't like how Tibet's discussed in some schools. Precisely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's this internationalization of controversies. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So you do provide some, uh, well, the philosophy chapter in the book presents a lot of material on why it's useful to present these subjects. But if you were to say, right. if you just had two minutes to explain to a young college professor how she or he um, can teach a controversy, like some guidelines, you think there's some general guidelines, or do you think it just really matters depending on the topic and the controversy of the students? No, I absolutely think there are general guidelines. Um, and I think that um, there are five of them. Okay. Um, uh, I think that the first one is to address controversies head on. Uh-huh. I think that for a whole variety of political reasons, there's a reluctance to address controversy. So one of the things we point out in the conclusion to our book is after... Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, mm-hmm. and a lot, of, a lot of area uh, classrooms, not all of them, but a lot of them, just ignored the subject. It was too, it was too controversial, too hot to handle, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and that doesn't do anybody any favors. I mm-hmm. understand the reluctance. I understand how difficult it is, mm-hmm. but I think we as educators are enjoined to address controversy. Now, the second rule is to avoid questions that are not actually controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I think, the real point of Emily's chapter, right? Whether human activity has contributed to warming the climate of the earth is not a controversy. I do understand that many people think that is not true. But Chris, they're wrong. For a controversy to be a real controversy, it has to be debated by the most informed people. Mm-hmm. That's the standard we create. Um, right. And among the most informed people, there is no debate about whether human beings have warmed the earth or contributed mm-hmm. to warming the earth. Now, mm-hmm. what to do about that fact, there's enormous debate. Mm-hmm. That's a real controversy, right? That's right. what we should be debating. So mm-hmm. number one, address controversies head on. Number two, avoid pseudo controversies, right? Mm-hmm. Do, do human beings share DNA with other mammals? This is not a controversy, right? Mm-hmm. right. I do want to understand that there are millions of people that think they don't. 
But alas, right. they're wrong. The most informed people understand that they do. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I, I, I think um, uh, number number three um, is is um, to um, uh, uh, is 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 to maintain absolutely strict standards of mutual respect. Mm-hmm. Um, the most depressing part of American politics um, is um, the way that debate and de- deliberation have been replaced by snark and invective. Mm-hmm. My wife and I will watch cable TV in the evening. We'll watch a debate about a question, you know, mm-hmm. Obamacare or whatever. Yeah. And we'll always look at each other and we'll say, that was not a debate. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just sequential rants mm-hmm. with really no attempt by either team to understand what the other was saying, mm-hmm. even to listen to what the other was saying. Um, yeah, it's uh, probably the function of TV and entertainment, the, the entertainment factor in news, which is depressing, oh, but nevertheless, that explains there, And there, there are many yeah. other things. I mean, yeah. the, the rise of cable television is, I think, a really important thing because it created these little segmented echo chambers. Mm-hmm. And I think the internet, there's some evidence that it, it does the same. And it also just mm-hmm. allows us to flame at each other with impunity. Mm-hmm. It allows us to behave in profoundly undemocratic ways mm-hmm. that I think we're, we're less likely to do um, uh, when we're face to face, but the mm-hmm. larger point, the larger point, Chris, is that we need to be taught how to do this. I don't think it's natural. Like people don't mm-hmm. come out of the room saying, "Like, well, I'm going to listen to everything you say, and I'm going to treat it with respect, even if I don't agree with it, and I won't yes. kill you." Right? There, there's yeah. there's nothing natural about that. It may yeah. even be unnatural. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely why we need to model it in our schools. So we need to address. Mm-hmm controversies head on, avoid things that aren't controversy, but in, in, in the course of addressing them head on, mm-hmm. we have to teach the proper way to address them. And the mm-hmm. proper way to address them is respectfully, um, without denigrating um, or unnecessarily um, uh, stigmatizing your opponent. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the central faith of democracy is that people of equal reason and equal goodwill can and do disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I fear that we've lost that faith in this country, mm-hmm. in part because we don't model how to respect it in our schools. That's not the only reason, there are a million of them. But yeah. I think the schools are enjoined to teach us a better way to communicate across our differences. And clearly they haven't been doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth rule is sometimes you're going to have to advocate for the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, when there are real controversies, it may be that one side of the controversy is just not represented. And that, too, by the way, is a function of the polarization and segmentation in our societies. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we have segmented ourselves in every way, including the communities we live in. Um, so, you know, you look at the literature on so-called landslide counties, like counties where the representative wins by like 50% or whatever, and the number of Americans who live in those counties has doubled in the past 20 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what that means is you're less likely now to live next to somebody with whom you disagree. Right. Yeah. And you're probably right? less likely to talk about it if you disagree too. Exactly. Very touchy exactly. subject now. And yeah. so because of that, 
it, it, it becomes more likely because of the way that schools are locally controlled that you'll mm-hmm. end up in a classroom where everyone thinks the same thing. And, mm-hmm. and, and when, when that's the case, it's the job of the teacher to take the other side. Again, if it's a real controversy, right? The teacher shouldn't yeah. be saying, oh, you know, all of you think that, uh, that evolution is real. Well, I'm here to tell you it isn't, mm-hmm. right? Because that's a pseudo controversy, mm-hmm. right? right. But, if, but, but, but if, everyone, if, if everyone in the room um, uh, favors Hillary Clinton for president, I think it's the job of the teacher to take Donald Trump's side and mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, uh, again, because the students have to see that not everyone who disagrees with them mm-hmm. is either morally or cognitively warped. Mm-hmm. That's the worst idea on the landscape. It is bipartisan, mm-hmm. right? So you disagree right. with me. It's not just because you know you have a different perspective or a different mm-hmm. history, right? right? It's because you're either stupid or evil. Mm-hmm. That is the worst idea on the land. Um, it is mm-hmm. fundamentally undemocratic, um, fully bipartisan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, again, you have to show the students that, that there are reasonable people that disagree with them, even if it means taking the side of, 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 a, of, a, of, a, of a, a debate that you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then, and then finally, the last rule, and this is the hardest one, by the way, is mm-hmm. you have to identify your own opinions as such and you cannot demand that the students share them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't think you have to hide your opinions. There are some people who do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that could be up to the discretion of the teacher. So I'm not saying the teacher obviously should be enjoined to share what she thinks. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is I don't feel that I, there should be any rule about mm-hmm. whether the teacher does or doesn't. I think that should mm-hmm. be up to the teacher based on what she sees in the classroom, who her students are and all that. Uh-huh. Here's the important condition. If and when the teacher decides to share an opinion, she uh-huh. has to identify it as such. And most of all, and here's the hardest thing of all, uh-huh. make sure the students understand that they are not enjoined to share it. And that's hard, especially uh-huh. at the younger ages, because she's an adult and uh-huh. they're not. Oh, right. and by the way, she's grading them. Uh-huh. Right? Right, right. Um, and, and, and so, you know, um, I think that for those reasons, it's easy to see why students might simply echo her opinion or even believe that her opinion is the gospel truth. Right. And you talk about that in your book about propagandizing, the difference yeah, between propagandizing that's, that's and stating an opinion. That's yeah, right. Students that's maybe mistakenly think that you're propagandizing and actually grading them on the basis of whether they agree with you. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, Alexander Michael John, who's actually the hero of the book, nobody reads him anymore, but he was this giant of, of, of civil liberties in the, uh-huh. the interwar period, mainly. In uh-huh. 1938, he wrote this essay that, that I quote in the book about this, where he says, look, um, a teacher can advocate what he or she wants. In fact, Michael John wanted them to. He thought, interestingly, they should share what they think because they're political beings uh-huh. and modeling politics and human beings have political attitudes. He said, slaves can't teach freedom. So he uh-huh. said, give up the pretense that, that, you know, that you're above politics. Uh-huh. Don't pretend to be neutral, but okay. And here comes the important condition. He said, they can be advocates, but they can never be salesmen or propagandists is what uh-huh. he said. Okay. And he said in that distinction is uh-huh. everything, you know? Uh-huh. So, 
you know, if you favor Donald Trump, you can advocate that. Or if you favor Hillary Clinton, you can advocate that. But you mm-hmm. cannot, you cannot demand that the students or even try to get the students mm-hmm. to agree with you. Right. But that's right. hard. Mm-hmm. Now, for subjects that are clearly political in the U.S., political in the sense of being partisan and both parties have a position on them, the politicians are talking about them. I think there is this problem that this goes to the third point you mentioned where you're supposed to respect the other person, but you know they're acting in bad faith and you know they're consistently lying about a topic. How do you deal with that situation? Well, this is really hard in the era of Trump, and I've been trying to figure this out. You know, unfortunately, we wrote this book before Trump became president. Mm-hmm. You know? But to me, I'm going to rephrase your question in the way that it's been troubling me, which mm-hmm. is... How do you teach and model a kind of democratic discourse when you have a leader who is flouting many norms of democracy? Mm-hmm. Um, and that now I'm going to state this as my opinion. I can't prove it, but I do believe mm-hmm. that Trump himself and his behavior has mm-hmm. flouted several important norms of democracy, you know, mm-hmm. calling judges that rule against him so-called judges, mm-hmm. analogizing American mm-hmm. intelligence agencies to Nazis. Right. To me, these represent enormous, enormous attacks on democratic norms. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, How do you teach democracy when you have a leader who is in some ways flouting its norms? Mm -hmm. You know, Um, uh, I think it's perfectly fair for a teacher to go in and say, look, the way that Trump behaved in those episodes that I just described was mm-hmm. fundamentally undemocratic. Mm-hmm. Um, but see, that's different from saying he shouldn't be our president. Mm-hmm. It's also different from saying you shouldn't vote for him. Right. I think it's yeah. perfectly reasonable for somebody to hear that and say, yeah, but I still want to vote for him. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, and, and I'll be honest, I mean, I yield to nobody in my loathing of Trump, um, mm-hmm. not because of the political positions he's taken, most of which I disagree with, but mm-hmm. because of the way he has corrupted politics, mm-hmm. which is different. It's a different objection. Right. You know, um, yeah. calling your opponents, you know, you know, dummies and morons. Um, again, mm-hmm. that echoes the kind of snark of, of reality TV, which let's mm-hmm. remember is where Trump developed his public persona. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it shouldn't be surprising, even though it is depressing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, um, I, I, I think the real challenge is mm-hmm. to make it clear that you can like Donald Trump if you'd like, mm-hmm. but in my classroom, insofar as Trump behaves in those undemocratic ways, mm-hmm. you can't act like him. Fair enough. That's a good point. Yeah. You can like him, you can vote for him, mm-hmm. but in my classroom, you mm-hmm. can't act like him. Well, when I talked to my students about the election last year, I, I talked about norms as well and how um, one way to look at the history of the United States in the last 20 years is, is Trump is, in a way, a combination of attempts by people like Newt Gingrich and Mitch McConnell to, to discard norms of the past, too. Um, but I tried to be fair about it as well by saying I'm not trying to criticize conservative parties. There are many parts of the world where the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party both equally respect the norms. So it's not 
I'm not trying exactly. to bash one side of the ideological divide, but I am saying something particular has happened in America. It's different. Yeah. And I think sometimes yeah. drawing on international examples can, you can point to cases where something op the opposite of what's happening in America is happening somewhere else, maybe. Definitely. And look, yeah. but the other thing I would say is that I'm of the opinion, underscoring it is my opinion, that America <laughs> has shown up pretty well over the past couple of months. And <laughs> when I say that, I mean particularly American institutions. Um, even though I loathe Trump, I feel incredibly lucky at this moment to be an American. Mm -hmm. um, and here's why. Um, the system has actually worked. It's under enormous stress mm -hmm. from somebody who seems to disregard lots of mm -hmm. its norms. But, you know, the fifth grade civics, which, of course, most people don't learn because it's presented in such a boring way. Mm -hmm. Right. It works. These mm -hmm. This check and balance thing. Yeah, it's it awesome. I mean, Chris, the operating system is really good here. And yeah. anyone who lives in America should just thank whatever God they worship for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, look, I mean, so so he does this immigration order and lo and behold, just like fifth yeah. grade civics predicts, you know, there's this other branch of government called the judiciary. Right. right? Yeah. And it stops it. He tries mm -hmm. to repeal the ACA with really nothing to replace it with. And there's yeah. this other branch called Congress and they say no, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, uh, he, he denigrates the so-called New York Times and calls it enemies of the people, but the fourth estate mm -hmm. has done a really good job in exposing a lot of terrible things that Trump and his family have done. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and nobody, even though he's made ridiculous and to me offensive comments about the free press, even though I write a column every week, nobody from the state has threatened me, mm -hmm. you know? Right, yeah. So, so you know, um, our institutions are incredibly strong, mm -hmm. and they're so strong that they can even survive this. And I think we should all be grateful for this. If this sort of demagogue had come to power in many other parts of the world, there just would have been a bloodletting. Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah. one, one team would take over the TV station, the military base, and kill the other team. That's very easy. In some countries, it's just very easy to replace judges on the Supreme Court if you're president. Yeah, of or, course. Yeah, so... Right, right. I don't yeah. like you. You're out. Yeah. Yeah. So there's yeah. So we, we're very lucky to have a judiciary and the Supreme Court and mm -hmm. district courts where the president just can't throw you out if he decides you don't belong there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, again, as appalled as I am by Trump, I've never been prouder to be an American. Um, you know, and and, mm -hmm. um, you know, we've had one operating system since 1787. It was not mm -hmm. perfect. In that, which is why we, um, among other things, had to fight a war when 700,000 people died in order mm -hmm. to amend it. We've amended it several other times. But the skeleton of the operating system is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and by the operating system, I don't just mean the, the codified clauses and rules. I also mean the kind of informal, less codified rules of behavior, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, again, I do think that Trump has flouted those, but I think that we as a nation, I think the best case scenario is he helps us rediscover them. Mm -hmm. I don't think that is his purpose, right? right. But I think it could be a silver lining okay. because when you see the negative referent, and mm -hmm. that's the way I see Trump, you know, I see him as the undemocratic negative referent. Mm -hmm. I think what it calls your attention to is um, 
let's just say the values that he is flouting, the values institutions that he is flouting, and hopefully mm-hmm. what it will do is call all of our attention to a renewed respect for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's definitely renewed respect for the press and the judiciary. I mean, in some yes. ways that people weren't aware of. I mean, I myself have experience, have, being an immigrant, my green card was was stalled by the FBI for a period because my name is Chris Martin and there's a convict who shares that name, possibly many convicts who do because it's a common name. And I filed a lawsuit against the executive branch because of that, and it worked. And so from personal experience, I can attest to how if the executive branch is violating your rights, the judiciary is one place to go. Exactly. You know, and and, and look, you know, at a juncture like this, mm-hmm. people um, will often say, yeah, well, it worked for Professor Martin, but what about all these other poor schmucks that are getting screwed over here and there? And mm-hmm. my retort to that is, yes, that's real. Yes, mm-hmm. we have to be vigilant. But, you know, the very the very fact that you're able to critique the departure from our norm shows their strength. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's not this is like a perfect wonderkind, you know, lovely, equal place. It is not yeah. right. Yeah. In some right. ways, it's gotten yeah. many powers worse. It's the strength of our institutions and our norms that allows us to critique our deviation from them. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Mm-hmm. So we're. Uh, it's about 9.58. Do we have any closing thoughts on uh, on the book or uh, future publications? I didn't touch on your previous publications. I don't know if you want to Yeah, well, what well, the book I wrote before this one was about campus politics, right. you know, mm-hmm. and, and how, how in many ways I think perverted and difficult campus politics has become mm-hmm. um, for a whole range of reasons, including yeah. what I call the psychologizing of politics, that is the expression of political attitudes and claims in psychological terms, mm-hmm. uh, which I yeah. think in many ways is a, a political cul-de-sac. Mm-hmm. I don't think psychology and politics play well together. Um, Chris, if you tell me yeah. that you were microaggressed by something that I said in this interview, mm-hmm. I have exactly one thing to say in response. Sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't mm-hmm. say you weren't. I would never say that. Mm-hmm. You know, can't look into your soul. Um, mm-hmm. But that's precisely my point. You know, I think on our campuses, these languages of psychology have actually interfered with interfered with political discussion. I would say that we see that, that the place where the two books come together is, you know, obviously at the K through 12 levels, we're not socializing people to engage in political discussion, mm-hmm. you know. And so when they get to campus, it's not surprising that they don't have the tools to do it or that they shy away from it. Mm-hmm. Look, if you show up on a campus and you hear during orientation that there are all sorts of different groups on campus that you might offend, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, doesn't, it, doesn't it make sense just to kind of keep quiet? Like, I think I would, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Especially if in your K through 12 education, you really didn't receive a solid education in how to talk about difficult and controversial questions. Mm-hmm. And so I do think in a way, the answer to the campus politics question begins much earlier. It mm-hmm. begins in the way that we socialize people or not mm-hmm. to political conversation. Yeah, I've thought about this too. I'm in sociology now, but I did a master's in psychology just before this. And I did a bachelor's yeah. in psychology too. Um, and there's definitely research on human vulnerability, and there's different research on human resilience as well. And I think we sometimes underestimate resilience, 
yes. which is a problem. Um, and we understand we underestimate the fact that people can recover um, from being in a bad mood. I mean, an argument can really make you feel insulted, but I think you might yes. underestimate how long that bad mood will last and how right. it'll affect your life. But I have been thinking too about um, how a lot of the controversies are residential colleges, and I think there the situation is that the college is also your home, and that's a different situation from universities where you commute to the universities. It's a different situation from primary schools and elementary schools where you have a home to go to. And I think yeah. maybe no one foresaw this when they created residential colleges, yeah. but to a certain degree, it can empathize with the fact that if you have people insulting you, deeply insulting you, and you have to live with them because the place where you work in the, and the place where you live is literally the same place. It that becomes be horrible. Yeah. No, there's no, there's no question about it. And look, you know, words injure. We know this. You know, they yeah. absolutely do. You know, um, I, but the question is what to do about that. You know, mm -hmm. and I think socializing people to feel a kind of psychological trauma, mm -hmm. all right, which I think in some places we've done, I don't yeah. think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, I think yeah. we should be able to come to a place where we acknowledge that words hurt, but we also acknowledge that some of the feeling rules, as sociologists call them, that mm -hmm. we've erected in our campuses surrounding these issues are profoundly unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Scott Lilienfeld here at Emory has done some work now on microaggressions and whether yes. microaggressions training is out of state where we should be implementing it. And his conclusion is no. We need yes. to, microaggressions are real, but... The training we're implementing might make everything worse, so we need could. to do some more research on what we're doing here. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, Jim yeah. Sedanius's work that I've read, I think, points in the same direction. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, it might well be that sensitizing people towards these things has the opposite effect from what we want. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think that's a that's a discussion we have to have. But mm -hmm. of course, some of the psychological premises surrounding all of this language actually inhibit even that discussion. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. If, if, yeah. Right. I mean, if, if I suggest that perhaps microaggression trainings make things worse, you might regard that as a microaggression. Mm -hmm. You might say, well, you're not taking my feelings seriously enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in one positive development, I went to the social psych conference in January this year, the big yeah. social and personality psych conference. And there was one session devoted entirely to these somewhat politically controversial subjects and Scott's topic. Um, could have been very harshly received, but it was actually well received. That's great. No one attacked That's him great. for it, and people Look, were I mean, actually quite interested yeah. in it. And I think yeah. it's partly because he appreciated that there is something to the idea of microaggressions, but for sure. but um, but at the same time, there's just a lot we don't know right now. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I've got to go on to the next thing. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank yeah. Yeah. Us. Congratulations on being our first interviewee. Thank you. Thank you. And if there's anything else I can do to help, please, please let me know. And I, I hope we actually meet uh, at some point, not in pixels. I hope yeah. so. I hope we someday have a conference for, for those of us who are in this. But thank you for your time. Okay. Thanks a lot, Chris. Take All care. Right. Take care.